0: Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, free speech, the ACLU, and the principal defense of our constitutional rights. Richard, there's been a recent rise in partisanship. Uh, ...within Washington, D.C. that may be chipping away at the principles of many organizations. And one of those is the ACLU, which is subject of a recent New York Times piece. The ACLU is an organization that has a hundred-year history of defending free speech, no matter the defendant, until recently. So before we get into uh, what's happening right now, can you give me your quick history with the ACL, ACLU and uh, maybe talk about what what gave this organization such a great reputation, maybe back in the civil rights days?
1: Sure, I mean, uh, the civil rights days were much easier than uh, the current situations today, because we all had a pretty good sense as to who was on the good side and who was on the bad side. And it turned out that the people who had the power were often on the bad side. Uh, so in the ACLU, comes along. What it's trying to deal with is all sorts of situations involving segregationists who are trying to suppress free speech and to suppress people's rights to vote at the polls. When you start moving into the 1950s and the 1940s, there's an organization called HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. And what it did is it constantly hauled people in front of them to get them to testify about their communist affiliations and so forth in order to get people blackballed from various kinds of industries. And what the ACLU did is it defended all of these individuals. It was regarded in many ways as a necessary and heroic act, because many of the people who were involved were charged of being communist or having communist sympathies and affiliations. And this was at a time when Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were sent to the chair for releasing nuclear secrets to the Russian, and in which the general anti-red sentiment in the United States, with a lot of justification, I might add, was very, very strong. And so it took a certain degree of courage to say, no matter what you think about the general politics, the certain kinds of procedures that were supposed to follow in criminal investigations and so forth apply every bit as much uh, to the to these people as anybody else. And so the ACLU became very, very well-known for the following proposition. We defend ardently those people with whom we disagree. Our job here is not to defend the message. Our job is to make sure that there's no prosecution of the messenger. And then after the civil rights issues uh, were given rise to to, um, in the communist context, they moved into race relations. One of the great cases that had to deal with that had to do with the NAACP against the state of Alabama. And this will start to sound kind of ironic, because what the state of Alabama wanted to do was to ask the NAACP to turn over its membership list so that it could investigate these people for suspect kinds of arrangements. And trying to figure out the exact constitutional grounds under which that uh, hunting expedition would be blocked was not an easy task. And sure enough, what happened is, in a very important opinion, I think the ACLU was involved in this case, is what happened is they said that the freedom of association, uh, which is implicit in the First Amendment, means that if you can't give any individual, force them to disclose their affiliations, you cannot do it by any organization Uh, who's entitled to represent the rights of its um, members as part of an organization. So again, the ACLU was very much, I think, on the right side. But there were always tensions early on in the history with respect to what it did. And labor relations tends to show one of these things. Well, one of the areas in which free speech is very problematic has to do with labor union organizations and so forth. Uh, What makes this system of labor relationships go is a very heavily articulated interaction between what management can do, do and what management can say. And many management people said, we think it is perfectly all right for us when we're dealing with a labor union uh, to tell its unions that if you um, come into place. We're going to shut this business down to tell the employees uh, make threats of one kind or another on the grounds that normal principles of free speech would apply. And what happened in those particular cases is the uh, Supreme Court said in order to make the labor relations system go, uh, what has to happen is you have to put certain kinds of limitations on employer speech or otherwise its ability to threaten and its ability to promise will make labor organizations impossible to achieve. The ACLU, uh, which had not only civil liberties orientations, but labor orientations, essentially was probably on the anti-free speech side in that particular case. And to this day, uh, many of the rules that are associated with freedom of speech um, uh, that we have to deal with, uh, well, it turns out that um, uh, the union's um, basically have the support of the uh, ACLU, notwithstanding the fact that the free speech principles might point in the other direction. So all of this stuff continues. And of course, uh, you go through Vietnam and other kinds of protests and so forth. And more often than not, the ACLU was dealing with individuals subject to government repression. And I think the equilibrium position sort of remained through the 1980s. Last 30 years, uh, Tom, we could talk about it if you want. uh, Things start to get a little bit more complicated.
0: Let's absolutely talk about it. Um, You know, one important piece of legislation was the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1993, which Congress passed and the ACLU supported. And this legislation provided protections for people to practice their faith. But the ACLU has changed its opinion on this legislation. Can you can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a very complicated sort of history. Um,
1: uh, what happens is there are a number of decisions in the 1960s and 70s. But mainly the 60s, which have to do with more complicated arrangements, because you're no longer talking here about the government suppression. You're starting to talk about the question of whether or not the government can condition various sorts of benefits upon certain kinds of conduct. And starting in the 1950s, uh, the civil liberties unions took the pretty effective position uh, that uh, you could not say to somebody, um, if you want to be a member of the bar, what you have to do is to uh, indicate all the people with whom you associated who have communist affiliations. And George Anastopoulos is one of these people who refused to sign this. He goes to the Supreme Court, he loses 5-4, and for the rest of his life, he refuses to join the bar because he thought the question was just inappropriate. Uh, But when it starts coming to the question of giving out government benefits apart from the bar, uh, we had two cases that uh, got real kinds of controversial issues. Um, One of them... There was a case called Wisconsin against uh, Yoder. And what happened there was the question as to whether or not you could force the uh, Amish uh, students to go to school uh, when it was against the religious belief of their family that they should do so. And the Civil Liberties Union was very much on the side of the individual parents, saying that they're entitled to have that kind of discretion with respect to the way in which they conduct their affairs. And it turned out that they won. And there was a huge battle, as you could imagine, because many other people would say the socialization associated with public education is so important that you cannot let your children stay out of this particular system, particularly if the kind of education that you're going to supply is not going to be an obvious substitute for what it is that uh, is done by the uh, uh, public schools. Uh, There was a earliest set of cases called Pearson Meyer back in the 1920s. And what that sort of held was that uh, you could run a private school and teach it in German. Uh, You could essentially run a religious school. You could not essentially force people to go to public school. And the ACLU was pretty much on the right side of all of those kinds of issues. Then the other one of these cases called Sherbert and Werner decided in the early 1960s is still a great puzzle to everybody. There was a Seventh-day Adventist. She said that her religion did not allow her to work on the uh, Sabbath, which in her case was a Saturday, I believe. Uh, And the employer said, either you work on these particular days or we're going to have to let you go. If she refused to do, they let her go. And then the question was whether she was entitled to unemployment benefits on the grounds that she could have kept the job. And what Justice Brennan said, in an opinion that resonates quite powerfully today with most people, is you are not allowed as the government to put people to a choice between their religious beliefs and a set of standard benefits that everybody else is going to get. And so it was, again, another kind of freedom in that case. Uh, What happens is the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, had to respond to a very powerful change in sentiment, which took place in the 1990 decision of Smith against the Employment Association. This would be in the state of Oregon. And and Smith was a member of an Indian tribe that smoked um, peyote as part of its rituals. And uh, the prosecutor refused to prosecute this particular case on the grounds that If you have one of these regimented religious ceremonies, there's no real danger of people going off on benders, getting corrupted youth, and all the rest of this stuff. And he wanted no part of this particular case as what I think would be a very sensible form of prosecutorial discretion. Uh, But then uh, Smith was let go, and he applied for unemployment benefits. And it was the Unemployment's Benefit Office that, well, you committed a criminal act, and so therefore uh, what happens is you are not eligible. So, Smith uh, then starts to sue. And in the Supreme Court, when the court gets there, there are three very complicated opinions. The most damaging by far, probably his worst opinion ever, was by uh, Justice Anthony and Scalia. And what he said is when we start talking about religious freedom, what we really mean is that you cannot select religious people out for punishments that you don't apply for other people, which meant, in effect, so long as you punish other people for peyote use, you can, notwithstanding the social context. Uh, Punish Mr. Smith for that kind of a stuff. And so therefore, the only protection you get is equal protection and parity protection. You don't get what was the previous situation under the two earlier cases that I mentioned, Yoder and... um, Oh, uh, uh, Sherbet and Werner, uh, all you get is equality, and everybody went up and smoked at that particular provision, because it seemed to me that if you decided that everybody was going to eat pork and mess in the military, a Jewish and Muslim people would have to eat pork along with everybody else, and the parade of horribles came along, and there was a really profound difference of opinion, and on the one side, there was the a neutrality rule, and on the other side, there was what I think is the right principle, is that when you have strong, religious beliefs, you have to make accommodations for them when it turns out that you're talking about government programs of one kind or another, be it unemployment benefits um, on the one hand or whether it's education on the other. And this position got complete bipartisan support, um, left and right. And this statute passed in 1993, pretty much by acclamation. And what it did is it cited essentially both the cases that I just mentioned, saying this is the rule. And if the government wants to restrict some religious freedom, it can't do it in the name of neutrality. It has to show that there is going to be um, it can do that unless the other guy can show that there's a substantial interest on the other side. And then you ask whether or not they pick a means which is too broad or too narrow to start to deal with this. And so it was back to the accommodations question in which the government had to have a strong end on the one hand, and it had to pick narrow means on the other. And, and this lasted for a while. And so by the time you are here, uh, you're seeing religious liberties. And the question then comes, and I, I can continue the story if you'd like, what happens in the next twenty years about the nature of the kinds of cases that leads the aCLU to change its mind on religious freedom?
0: well, let's let's talk about um, other cases that the aCLU is has uh... Perhaps change its tune on, or or its its approach to to cases. If you go back to 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia, you might recall the the far right white nationalist group that that had a rally, and when they were setting up, of course, people objected, and the local ACLU chapter defended their right to assemble, uh, but then the the rally turned violent. Uh, dozens, hundreds of people were were injured, and afterward, uh, the National ACLU issued new guidance that discouraged taking cases that might, in a quote, give offense to marginalized groups. So how do you square that with the ACLU's uh, past principle of, as you said, defending those with whom they disagree with?
1: Well, it doesn't square very, very well. Uh,
0: Marginalized groups, of course, is a kind
1: of a code word which says that preferential treatment has to be given to certain people who are thought in some way, shape, or form to uh, be lacking in political power. There is a very low correlation between those groups that the ACLU will call marginalized on the one hand and people who lack power on the other. So the gray rights movement and the civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter are juggernauts. They are much more powerful. On the other hand, what you do is you have evangelical Christians, and this, of course, is one of the cases where things start to break. Uh, you get Jack Phil, Bill, Bill Phillips, a masterpiece Um, uh, cake shops. And what he refuses to do is to bake a cake on religious freedom for a gay couple. And it turns out that the ACLU will not back his individual rights of conscience, but will essentially indicate that the dominance of the anti-discrimination principle sweeps everything else before it. In a case, by the way, which was marked by real abuse and all sorts of taunts and, and nasty statements hurled at Jack Phillips. Uh, the Colorado um, uh, Civil Rights Commission is on record as having said that religious liberty is often a fig leaf for um, the Holocaust and other kinds of situations. Uh, I could assure you Hitler was not a defender of religious liberty. He was a defender of religious oppression or oppression in the names of religion. But they did this in the Supreme Court in a very wishy washy opinion, told him to start over in that case. But it's a kind of sign of the time that in every case of which I'm I'm aware in which a photographer, a florist, or a baker uh, decides that they cannot, as a matter of conscience, uh, do something for a religious organization that regards uh, compromising their own expressive freedoms of either speech or religion, the ACLU has been firmly on the other side. And I'm a much more traditional civil libertarian. I have always written and worked on behalf of all these real marginalized groups against the juggernauts that are sitting there on, on the other side. So what's happened, is, uh, you use the word marginalized group, it indicates that your progressive politics have now taken over from your general view that you will defend unpopular people, including people like our good friend, Jack Phillips. It's also clear that the polarization of the Trump era uh, starts to become very, very powerful. And the ACLU is a regular machine. I think it filed as many as three or 400 lawsuits against the Trump administration. I'm sure some of them are right, uh, but what happens is if you see essentially virtually no suits filed in the Obama years and huge numbers filed in the Trump years, it turns out that what has happened is the ACLU has become much more of a partisan player than it has done before. And it's formed that independence, uh, intellectual and political, which gave it such resonance back in the 40s, 50s, 30s, and 60s, and so forth, seems now to be at issue. And, you know, I think it's also clear that when you get back to the Religious Freedom Reparation Act, you're going to see exactly the sentiments play out that way.
0: Richard, in the last five years or so, since uh, Donald Trump came to national prominence, became president, the ACLU budget has nearly tripled. You know, another organization, the Southern Poverty Law Center, is is another is famous for raising an incredible amount of money, um, regardless of the e- efficacy of its efforts um, or the philosophical underpinnings of its organization, is this kind of organizational drift inevitable? I mean, how do you counsel them to pull out of it and return to their founding principles?
1: Well, I mean, it's very difficult because what's happened is the composition of the ACLU has really changed. Um, originally, I, I think they were much more classical liberal in terms of their orientation. They regarded freedom of speech uh, as being something which was a bedrock principle. It could never be a bridge on the grounds that the speech was offensive to people who didn't like what was said. It was not something that you could stop um, on the grounds that the majority of the people were stirred up in one way, shape, or form. Even in cases of uh, defamation, uh, the ACLU was very chary about allowing those actions to go forward even where they met all the common law principles associated with force and fraud. So I can recall in many cases criticizing the ACLU for being too permissive with respect to speech, taking the position that speech could be limited on the same kinds of grounds that you could limit any other kind of action. If there's a threat of force or a danger of defamation or a misrepresentation of fraud, uh, you could start to control it. And they started to go pretty much in the opposite direction. But then the progressives started to take over. And boy, you can start to see the difference. And let me mention two situations. Uh, The first of these is the question about what kind of conditions can you impose upon somebody who wants to come into your organization. And during the uh, 1950s and 1960s, what the ACLU consistently held was that you could not condition receiving a government job on your willingness to sign a loyalty oath. What they said is, like in Sherbert and Werner, uh, this is a form of coercion to force you to choose between two things when you're entitled to both, and they said, don't call this a privilege, call it a right, and these rights are going to be protected against that kind of situation. Come the year 2010, the following situation starts to happen. There's something known as the Christian Legal Society, and what it wants to do is to use school bulletin boards at the Hastings Law School in order to propagate what's going on. The school then announces it will not allow anybody to use its boards unless they admit into membership anybody who wants to join, including gay rights members of Outlaw who wanted to join an evangelical society, and they would clearly take it over. And sure enough, instead of saying, look, uh, you have religious freedoms and the school cannot say that if you want to come here, particularly a state school, what you have to do is to forfeit these rights to choose your own associational freedoms, they went exactly the opposite, and all of sudden, Judge Ginsburg, that's Ruth Ginsburg, says, you know, there's a difference between a right and a privilege, and they're entitled to condition uh, your willingness to use the school bulletin boards on your willingness to admit others into the group. So they have taken an absolute flip-flop on unconstitutional conditions. Now that they're in charge, they like the kinds of conditions that were imposed. When they weren't in charge, they did not. I have to tell you, um, I am not as much a partisan as most. I think the conditions are wrong, whether they're imposed by the left or by the right. Under these circumstances, but it was striking to see that particular flip. Uh, To just give you the last case again, the other situation has to do again with the Freedom Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, In 2015, what happened is the ACLU uh, decided that it could no longer support this because it was being used by individuals to advance causes, which didn't involve the individual rights to smoke peyote, but organizational efforts to refuse government mandates. Uh, For example, in the Hobby Lobby case, can you? condition, um, uh, the willingness to get various kinds of benefits under the Clinton health care program, either the Obama health care program on the willingness to supply contraceptives to your employees, even if you're a religious organization. As you remember, this created a terrible roar. And one of the aftermaths had the following situation. It was described when the ACLU decided, look, we can't tolerate these cases. They said, it turns out these religious organizations are so ridiculous that they simply refuse to supply to the employer a simple notification that they will not issue contraceptive coverage. That's what they said was going on. It turned out that was a complete falsehood. The case goes to oral argument, and it's being defended by two very able lawyers, Paul Clement on the one hand, and Noel Francisco, the former Solicitor General of the United States. And in the middle of the argument, he said, look— This is not a question of just telling the government we don't want to do that. We've already told them that a thousand times. What you want us to do is to sign a form which will authorize the government to sue the insurance companies of these religious organizations to cover the expenses associated with contraceptives even though they would not be allowed to charge that back to the religious organization, so this was a rather cynical work around the, against the basic prohibition. And anybody who's serious about canon or Jewish law would realize to sign a form like that is complicity in trying to bring about a result coverage for basically for abortion, which is inconsistent with your religious beliefs. And so, in the middle of the argument, when this becomes clear, everybody sort of huddles before the bench. The government kind of makes it clear that it really didn't understand what the case was about, and the whole thing kind of disappears, although there are future assaults of that side. But what happens is, since now you get these organizations who don't join in the progressive mantra on these things, the ACLU in 2015 or 2016 announced that it no longer supported the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because it was being used by the wrong kind of people. And so with the story you see in the New York Times it was about a guy, Goldberger, I guess who was 79 years old, thinking back on his life. He was early ACLU. I'm early ACLU in some sense, not late ACLU, but now there's a absolute battle for the soul within that organization. To what extent are you willing to prepare to defend unpopular people like Jack Phillips in the Masterpiece Theater uh, or Cake Shop? And to what extent are you going to make yourself an agenda and an assistant to the progressive agenda which regards discrimination on these particular grounds as the greatest wrong? I'm very clear on this in my own mind, and this goes back to the very fine opinion that Harry Blackman wrote in the uh, Smith v. The Employment Office, in which he said, look, um, you do not have a justification to override religious freedom on the grounds that you have to enforce an anti-discrimination law. And the correct way to understand that is anti-discrimination rules do make sense as a counterweight to monopoly power, but they become truly coercive when you start to use them in competitive industries or in social settings, which have no sign of that. <coughs> Harry got it right. Scalia got it wrong. He never backed off of that particular position. And what happens is, and I think there's a lesson to be learned here, if what you do is you get a constitutional decision wrong and somebody tries to correct it by legislation, uh, the fix is never as good as getting it right in the first place. And so what happens now, there's a very large space in which political organizations can maneuver. And these organizations will take after isolated religious individuals claiming that they're marginalized where the basic shtick is always the same. I'm going to say that I'm weak and hopeless and disorganized so I can beat you up with a club, even though, in fact, you are weak and disorganized. It's not a fair fight when you're trying to figure out how Jack Phillips stands up against everybody else. uh, But it turns out that the ACLU, in cases like this, is on the wrong side. They should, I believe, return to the principles of their arch.
0: Last one here, Richard, and I don't want to let conservatives off the hook. Um, Governor Abbott of Texas just signed a bill that outlaws businesses, government entities from requiring vaccine passports or any vaccine information of customers. Governor DeSantis, you saw in Florida, issued guidance that would Uh, prevent cruise ships from requiring proof of vaccination it used to be in my day that conservatives were against government mandates for allowing businesses to operate how they wished what what are the chances that the aclu steps up and uh and and takes some cases here finds their own version of masterpiece cake shop uh to 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 fight back against these governors to
1: find a situation in which they will represent a business which uh, doesn't want to require vaccine certificates. I think if you actually look at the way this thing is working is what the DeSantis the situation is saying, that there's no public health justification that would require various kinds of businesses to issue or to accept vaccine passports. If that's what's going on, uh, that's a traditional kind of civil liberty position to which the offset has always been held. And this has been a nightmarish question for Everybody to face going back to a case called Jacobson against Massachusetts in 1905, where the question is whether or not you could claim serious physical disabilities as a justification for staying out of the vaccine vaccine system. And what Justice Holmes said is you could not do that. What he actually said was we can fine you $5 if you don't want to do that, but we can't make you do it. Now the question is uh, which side should the ACLU be on? I think it's a very hard question. Now that COVID is on on the wane. I think, in effect, that the correct position is to say that private businesses can or cannot require that of their employees. Many will. Some will not. Uh, But this is going to be optionality and to be handled by freedom of contract. To the extent that the DeSantis position, and you have to look very closely at the legislation to know exactly what it is, is consistent with freedom of contract. At this stage in the COVID evolution, I would be in favor of it. If it turned out that you had something which was much more serious and you were in a very different part of the cycle, maybe otherwise. But the truth be known. Uh, it turns out that DeSantis was much more right than, say, Anthony Fauci on trying to figure out how you deal with the various kinds of consequences of COVID. So, uh, my sense about it is he's probably right on this one. But boy, oh boy, a lot of this stuff depends on the fine print. And until I read it, I'm not going to commit myself definitively. Particularly since the show has gone on in an inordinately long time.
0: You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at Hoover.org. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.